Hey there, Mo Maduro with Life Expansion After 50 Podcast. Today, I want to set the stage to kind of pull together the various things we've been talking about, to connect the dots between seven fitness areas, the buildup that I've been doing talking about the unconscious and the 100 billion neurons, and now how cognitive biases tie into all of that and what it has to do with self-actualization. Now, first of all, it's not just self-actualization. It's self-actualization and life expansion after 50. Why is that important? Because after 25 years of living with the belief that our limitations are ours to keep, nothing can be farther from the truth. Let me unpack that a little bit. Until just recently, it was understood that our genetics are our genetics. It is who we are. In fact, there was a marshmallow experiment. You can look it up. I'm sure there's a YouTube on it, marshmallow experiment. And they had these kids, young kids, four or five years old, maybe younger than that. And they had a, they set up this scenario where the kid would have a marshmallow. And if they didn't eat the marshmallow in the allotted time, then they would get two marshmallows. They had cameras and they were showing. It's kind of fun to watch because the kids are squirming. One kid licks the marshmallow, smelling it, touching it, playing with it, picking off little pieces and other kids just didn't do anything. Other kids turned around completely. What's interesting about that experiment, though, is the researchers decided to follow those kids into adulthood, and, be, and I, I guess into their 30s, maybe. What they found was that the kids who did not eat the marshmallow and held out for the two marshmallows, and they were talking about delayed gratification, those children as adults were much more successful. So when you look at that study at face value, it says, oh, well, if I didn't have delayed gratification at five years old, well, I'm done. This is it. This is all I'm going to get. There is no willpower gene. In fact, our genes and the gene expression actually is changed by our internal environment. And our internal environment is dictated by our response to the external environment. So it's not what happens to us. You've heard this all along, right? It's not what happens to us. It's our response to what happens, but it's more important than we ever knew because it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to what happens to us, and how we respond to what happens to us sets up our internal environment, and the internal environment influences the gene expression, which is where we get the epigenetics. When you look at it like that, you, you start to recognize that, wait a minute, if I can change my, my neuroplasticity, and if I'm not stuck with a gene, a particular gene, or I didn't get a particular gene, I can do something about that. So self-actualizing and life expansion require us to work past our limitations, our limiting beliefs. Not only that, we have to get above that upper limit. And for many of us, we've been bouncing off that upper limit for two or three decades. And we've accepted that we're not going above it. And it's understandable. But now that we know that that's different, The question is, if you choose to stay below that upper limit, do so consciously. Do so with a thought-out process that that that's what you want to do and be okay with it, knowing that you might be alive for another 50 years or more. So if you're 50 and you're going to be alive until 100, how comfortable are you that you're going to stay below that upper limit and not try? If you can future pace yourself out there, and, and I'm not trying to push you into anything, the point is... We have free will and we have choice. And I would argue that regrets are much heavier to carry than failure. And because failure is temporary, failures are just setbacks. 
Think about it. Everything you've ever attempted to do, it didn't kill you, obviously, because you're still here and you're still going and kicking. The question that you have to answer for yourself is, how important is it for you to reach back, fan that flame, and then head out and go after your self-actualization, to head out after your purpose? Now, this upper limit that I'm talking about, this is a series. It's been habits of thought, patterns, habits of mindset, habits of self-talk. And the stories, we've been telling ourselves stories, which makes it okay to be under that upper limit. We've got our parents' voices. We've got that guidance counselor's voice, the teacher's voice who said we'll never amount to anything. We have the friends who bullied us. Whatever, whatever took place that created your upper limit, we all have something. We all have a story. And while every story is not equal, if the story has kept you back, all of those stories have that same power. And... You know, the same hammer that shatters the glass forges the steel. So if we got shattered by any story, it doesn't matter how big the story is relative to other people's stories. The point is it was big enough to shatter our glass. Think about it like that. Step back and we're going to say that to get across that upper limit, we've got to deal with those stories. We have to deal with the patterns of thought, the mindsets, the beliefs, the habits. And I come from a place that says we're enough. We are enough as we are. We've always been enough and will always be enough. In other words, you don't need another course. You don't need another degree. You don't even really need capital to get started, especially today with the internet and uh, these apps are free. Many of these apps are free and you can get a following just by interacting with people on social media without even advertising. Of course, money accelerates it all, but sometimes some of the best innovations come because we don't we, we don't have the ability to write a check. And as a quick aside, as a matter of fact, I have a belief that says, if you have two companies and they start together at the same time and they're moving along and one company, company A, writes a check every time there's a problem, they solve it with writing a check and company B innovates, innovates, innovates. You go five years down the road and there's a big recession, company B is much more likely to handle it and come out on the other side stronger. Why? One is because they didn't spend as much money. Their costs, their their expense load is less, but also they have a habit of innovating. They have a habit of, of, of stepping up to the plate and making a difference. Whereas the company A that's always just written a check for it, they're going to have higher expenses. And at some point, you're not going to have enough revenue to cover those expenses. And that's what makes it tough. So we want to be on the innovating side. So even if you have the capital, it doesn't mean you should tap it. Ask me. I mean, I'm a living example of that. I took all the money I had and bought a bunch of motorcycles and infrastructure, and I went at it. And looking back, could I have done it with a fraction of that? Absolutely, I could have started. Could I, would I have been happy? Absolutely, knowing, knowing what I know now. But I didn't know it then. So, But the, the thing is, it was a lesson I needed to learn, and I'd rather learn it at a couple of million dollars than a couple of hundred million dollars. So there is a problem with this idea that you're enough. Because if you're enough, then why don't you have what you want already? If you're enough, why are you still below that upper limit? And it has to do with the unconscious. Now, the unconscious is, is strong. It's as strong as you are. Why? Because you created it. You created it to protect yourself and make yourself safe, at least long enough to procreate. Now, you didn't know you were doing that. That's what happened from zero to seven. Your unconscious actually created your conditioning or became your conditioning so that you could survive long enough to procreate. And now you're living with that unconscious and you're 50 years old. Obviously, 
there's some other things that you would prefer to have conditioned rather than what it conditioned for you, but so be it. You may not be responsible for being where you are because you didn't really participate directly in choosing what you're going to be conditioned to and what you're not. And we don't want to blame parents. We don't want to blame environment, especially for us boomers and Gen Xers. I mean, we were outside most of the time, so the parents weren't doing all the conditioning anyway. If, if you lived in the city, you, we were getting our conditioning from you know school of hard knocks, the bloody noses, literally, and that's how we got conditioned. And who knows? It depends on what you ran into. And and again, the same hammer that forges the steel, shatters the glass. So you can have the same exact situation, but because of how we responded, we have different strengths and weaknesses. While we are not responsible for where we are, I would argue that we are responsible for where we're going to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. So you're responsible, but you're also a loving, caring human being, and you're going to love and care for yourself. And so you have the latitude to learn by trial and error. Crossing the river is hard. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. I spent probably two years, but I wanted to learn how to do it so I could teach it. I, I experimented a lot. I tested a lot. I didn't just go across the river. I went across a couple of times, went back, crossed it again to learn. I'm glad I did. And I'm telling you, it's, it's not easy, but it's a process and it's very predictable. Now that I've done it a few times, it's predictable. And why would I do it a few times? Because you could go after your purpose and cover a couple of stories and a couple of habit patterns. But if you want to get it done in the big space and be able to be that quarterback, for example, who can throw long, who can throw short, who can run, and who can, who, who can inspire the team, you're going to need more skills than just crossing the river one time, which might be the equivalent of the long ball. So it's really a combination of things. And we're going to have to overcome fears, fear of death. Let me back up. One of the challenges we have in crossing the river is we're always going to be saddled with this fear of success, right? Because when you get to the other side, the last thing you want to do is get thrown back over and have to explain to people how you ended up back there. What do I mean? The metaphor doesn't really last, but if you think about the line, the upper limit, and then flip it on a side 90 degrees, and now it's the river that you're crossing, back to the upper limit. Nobody wants to go up above that upper limit, get into this stratospheric level, and then come plummeting back down. And so that fear of success is probably scarier than some of the other fears, the six fears that Napoleon Hill talked about, which included fear of criticism, fear of death, fear of poverty, fear of old age, and fear of ill health. It's almost like stacking them because now your fear of loss of love was the other one. Fear of loss of love, fear of criticism, fear of ill health, because you don't have enough money to take care of yourself. You imagine yourself the worst, right? Being out on the street. So that fear of success can be like compounding the, the six basic fears. So here we go, let's jump into it. Uh, meditation is gonna be your friend, I'll tell you that. You're gonna to want to, to get to the point where you're meditating regularly, and I use Gandhi's quote, man, I have so much to do today, I better meditate twice as long. And Emily Fletcher's quote, quote, we don't meditate to get good at meditating, we meditate to get good at life. You're also gonna enjoy having a good night's sleep. You need both. The, the good night's sleep is going to help you with the cognitive dissonance you'll inevitably face. And the, and the sleep also helps you with the neuroplasticity. So what do I mean by the cognitive dissonance? We end up with cognitive dissonance when we're acting against one of our beliefs. If we have a belief that says this is our upper limit and we're pushing against it and acting against it and taking steps and making inroads, you're going to have some cognitive dissonance because that's what happens before you 
a belief has changed. And it makes sense, right? Because breakthroughs are, have to be preceded by confusion. If it's a breakthrough, that means it's a place we've never been before. And it's a major change. It's, it's more than an incremental improvement. It's a transformation. And that transformation is breaking the rules, like Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. And so there's cognitive dissonance that happens in order for you to get through there. But as you get through it, the belief changes. And just like after Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, there were 13 other runners who broke the four-minute mile in that same year. And today, I mean, it's not even a thing, right? The cognitive dissonance is, is expected. You'll learn to notice it and see it and, and even appreciate it because it's a signal. And it almost like it's looking forward to, man, I wonder what breakthrough I'm going to have tomorrow. Because remember... Those neurons that seem like they're working against you, when we do this work and you are shifting those beliefs and make going forward, those neurons flip and now they're working for you because they still want you to be safe. We're going to use tools to make the automaticity work for you. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes it's going to make you want to run for the hills. Then you'll learn to expect it and you'll learn to, to appreciate it. And I'll tell you, there are times when, you know, I feel like, man, it's like, it, can it get any bleaker? And literally, literally, the next morning you have a breakthrough idea. And it's amazing. The longer you, you're at it, the faster it comes. It used to be that I dreaded that 2 a.m., you wake up at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m., whatever yours is. I don't know if you've, if you've been in business, you know what I'm talking about. Talk to any entrepreneur, ask them, what does 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. mean? They'll have a story for you, probably a lot of stories. Now, if I have that wake up, I got two choices. I can either... Go do some work because sometimes it's because there's something I've got to get done or that breakthrough needs some ideas behind it and it's time to meditate. But either way, I've got a plan and I don't have to dread that anymore. Some of those meditations that happen in my unexpected wake-ups are the best ones because the outcomes are just fantastic because your unconscious has hit a, hit a wall and can't figure out what to do next. Remember, the unconscious is just the past associations. It's the conscious mind that can look into the future and create. The unconscious can't create, but it can certainly present ideas and problems and issues and situations and, and, and stoppages as well as on-ramps, but your conscious mind is the one that can put it all together and create something great. So that brings us to the cognitive biases. Why is this important? I said you're enough and you'll always be enough, but the cognitive biases are also more than enough. They, they've got the jump on you, and that's not all. Life is full of anchors. If you look around, your, your place of business and your home, you've got so many anchors, things that you've seen and looked at while you were in unresourceful states. So you may look at something and then you're, and you're in an unresourceful state and you come in in a resourceful state and you look at that thing and it triggers because the neurons that wire together fire together. And this can happen on and on and on. So we can't stop every single or we can't change every single one of those those uh, associations or stimulus response cycles. But what we can do is start to re-script how we work with it. I'm gonna tell you a little story here. Uh, when I was in uh, ranger, ranger training, you know, we're training to fight behind enemy lines. It was very important to be able to distinguish the enemy tanks from the uh, friendly tanks. Uh, you know, I was in the army back in the 70s and early 80s, so we were fighting still and we were still in the Cold War, and we were fighting that, that tank battle, so to speak. I don't remember the exact timing, but I want to say it was 
maybe as many as 10 tanks in a second that they would flash in front of us. I mean, they, you know, they, they were literally, you would just see a picture, blah, 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 five to 10 tanks per, per second that we would see. We'd have to decide if that was a friendly tank or an enemy tank. And it was amazing that we were able to do it with like a 70 and 80% success rate. Now, why was that? It's, we didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but now I understand because the unconscious, you've heard me say it, can process 11 million bits per second, whereas the conscious mind can only process 50 bits per second. You take that and then you look at what Malcolm Gladwell talked about in his book, Blink, and Thin Slicing, and you start to see the connections. So there are things that our unconscious is seeing. As soon as our senses pick it up, the unconscious gets it. The conscious mind may not pick it up for another two or three tenths of a second, but the unconscious is already processing it, and that's how I was able to identify those tanks. And the, the person in Malcolm Gladwell's book who looked at the painting could tell that it was a fake, but couldn't explain why she knew it was a fake. And that was the thin slicing. And that was a great book because it taught me to learn into thin slicing. I used it in sales. I used it in leadership. And sometimes you can't exactly say why you did something. You, you just know you did it. You can watch football. You can watch basketball. And you see players making moves that they didn't have time to think about that move. Uh, it was a response. But again, it takes the past. Remember, you have to have learned that because it's not creation. And that's why you want the conscious and the unconscious working together. I wish there was a formula, and I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of the books and the courses and the things like that fall flat when it comes to this part of it, because everybody's river is different. We all have to cross our own river, but this, the sequence of the stories and the patterns and the self-talk and the shattered glass and all that is in different order and maybe different magnitudes. So we have to figure that out, but you can do it. I mean, I have a, you'll be able to get a workbook that helps you uncover your purpose. We go into some exercises to get your, get your why behind the purpose. We also uncover your passion. We uncover your interest and your strengths. And that's free to you guys who are subscribers. For those who want to go to that next level, this workbook takes you through the process of figuring out what kind of a service should you connect to your purpose in the event that you want to go into monetization. And that's the self-work that you're going to have to do. And then, you know, you can always get a coach or a mentor to help you work through it, you know, on after that. But the point is, everybody's situation is different. And I will tell you that crossing the river is not an overnight thing. Now, some people do cross it overnight, but they're slammed into it, right? I mean, to me, conditioning is a combination of intensity, repetition, and duration. And sometimes if you can just put somebody into so much pain and it's so intense and the duration is long enough, they'll change. You could change in an hour. But if you don't have that, and I don't subscribe to that, if you don't have that, it's going to take you a long time because you need the repetition, right, to make up for the lack of duration or intensity. What we're talking about there, it's like when you are preparing, you have one team preparing to play another team. They've got to know what that other team's tactics are, their likely plays, etc., before they can formulate a, a defense. And all of this comes down to the existing muscle memory, and then we're going to rewrite the muscle memory so that we have automaticity. And what does all this have to do with cognitive biases? The cognitive biases are like priming. So the unconscious, the same way it could see that tank in a fraction of a second, picks up the stimulus, and that stimulus kicks off the cognitive bias. Now, what's interesting is that there's about 20 to 25 cognitive biases that are likely the ones that are holding you back. Now, there's some other outliers that, that can be pulled in. But once you understand the three cognitive biases, three or four that you're most susceptible to, 
and succumb to most often, then you can have a strategy to overcome those. But that cognitive bias is primed. It's primed by your unconscious. So we have to deal with it at the unconscious level. We have to identify most of the priming influences, and then we have to rewrite them so that that cognitive bias is not triggered, but a more empowering response is, is triggered. So we're going to get into these cognitive biases, and we'll talk about it in the context of how they hold people back. And maybe you'll see yourself in some of them. And as you do, I would argue, I would, I would suggest coming up with the two, three, or four that seem to be most likely the ones that get in your way. And then you can come up with a strategy. When you have that, and then you have your purpose, you can see where the opportunity is. And then there's some strategies that we can use to, as I said, rewrite. First of all, we want to neutralize the trigger to the degree possible. We don't want the trigger to be such a strong trigger. But it's still going to have some remnants about it because neurons that fire together wire together. So there's going to be some other triggering that happens. And then what we want to do is layer on a new response to that trigger. So when that trigger happens, it's a reminder to do greatness, not a time to sit back. So there you go. We're going to get into it. As I said, I want to start off with uh, confirmation bias, but I also want to talk about the fundamental attribution error and also the self-serving bias. These are biases that actually make it almost impossible for us to, to, to be the best version of ourselves because we're constantly self-sabotaging, not the conscious mind self-sabotaging, it's the unconscious and the cognitive biases that are undoing the work that we're doing as soon as we're doing it. So that's why I say you are enough. And once we take the cognitive biases and neutralize them, then let's see how fast you can go. It's essentially like taking five large concrete blocks off the back of your car and you're no longer dragging these concrete blocks around. And then how fast can your car go? What kind of gas mileage can you get from it? And that's what these cognitive biases are. They're literally like dragging concrete blocks around and trying to make some progress. And you're working harder and harder and harder, which is how we get burned out and stressed. And that's why we believe that upper limit is the upper limit because we can never get past it. You take those blocks off and you watch how fast you soar. I'm excited. I hope you are. Talk to you next time.